Thank you for joining the first episode of our new podcast, where we aim to tell you everything you need to know about policy developments in Washington. Today's episode is focused on corporate tax reform. Joining us are two highly respected experts, Rohit Kumar, a principal at PwC and former tax lead for the Senate Republican leader, and Mark Summerlin, founder of Evenflow Macro and former deputy director of the National Economic Council in the White House. I want to start with some background for listeners who haven't been following this debate closely. Rohit, why is there so much energy behind corporate tax reform this year? So there's a lot of attention, um, in part because you've got now a Republican House, a Republican Senate, and a Republican president, where they are mostly aligned on what their goals are for reform. And and those address some of the chief uh, sort of defects of the current tax code, namely the really high U.S. corporate rate, highest in the developed world. Um, and the fact that we apply that tax on a worldwide basis, which means we notionally uh, seek to tax, uh, the U.S. government notionally seeks to tax the worldwide earnings of U.S. headquartered companies, um, which puts the United States out of step with the rest of the G7 and most of the rest of the OECD. Mark, what are your thoughts? Well, I think it would be hard to design a worse tax system if you tried. Um, It's very complex because we try to tax worldwide income but then the law provides a way to evade that, which is simply don't bring your profits home and you never have to pay the tax. And so we end up with a lot of complexity and reason to not locate here, but it doesn't actually collect any revenue. And so it's possible to turn that around and have a tax system where you're encouraged to locate here, but one that also raises substantial amount of revenue. So let's set the scene a little for listeners who are going to be watching this debate unfold over the next few months. Who are the major players in Congress? So, I mean, you start with the leadership. You start with Paul Ryan, Speaker of the House, former chairman of the Ways and Means Committee. And it's been well over 100 years since we've had a Speaker of the House who had previously been chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee. He's the kind of guy that stays up at night thinking about tax reform, right? You got Kevin Brady, a congressman, Republican congressman from Texas, chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, um, and one of the primary authors of the House Republican Blueprint uh, for tax reform. So those are the kind of key players on the House side. On the Senate side, similarly, you've got Mitch McConnell, my former boss, uh, Senate Majority Leader, Orrin Hatch, Chairman of the uh, Senate Finance Committee. Uh, And as I think about it, you've got uh, two Republican senators who are uh, survivors of the Joint Select Committee on Deficit Reduction, the so-called Super Committee, um, Rob Portman, a senator from Ohio, and Pat Toomey, uh, a Republican senator from the state of Pennsylvania. They have both um, done a lot of thinking about fiscal policy. They were sort of forced to in the Joint Select Committee on Deficit Reduction, and they came out of that, I think, with a sort of enhanced appreciation for the various trade-offs that are in place, both on tax and on fiscal policy generally. And how about Democrats? They're in the minority in both houses, of course. Yeah, so you've got Democrats kind of come in two categories. You've got the leadership, so you've got Senator Schumer, the Senate Democratic leader, and Senator Wyden, the ranking Democrat on the Finance Committee. Um, But both of them are politically fairly safe, given the states that they're elected from. Um, And so they don't have a huge political imperative to cooperate with Republicans. They don't suffer at home if they don't cooperate with Republicans. But then you've got this cadre of 10 Senate Democrats who are running running for re-election in 2018 in states that Donald Trump carried in 2016. Five of them come from states that Trump carried by 19 points or more. So five Democrats running for re-election in 2018 in very red states. And so they become an interesting group of senators because for them, there is a political imperative to be seen as cooperating with Republicans. I think they have to find at least one issue between now and their re-election on which to find uh, a place to cooperate with Republicans. And tax may end up being the easiest 
um, of the ones, not necessarily easy, but the easiest of the ones to find some common ground with Republicans and then to be able to go back home and campaign in these red states saying, look, I'm a moderate Democrat who worked with President Trump on something of significance. Mark, you helped lead the National Economic Council during the Bush tax cuts, which was a big effort from the White House and Treasury. I remember well watching you do it. So walk us through who in the Trump administration will be most relevant to this debate. Mm. Well, I I think um, it's pretty clear right now that um, Gary Cohn, who is the National Economic Council director, is leading the tax debate. Um, And Chair Brady yesterday said that he's currently doing the deep dive and is the one that had hired um, tax staff. And so um, that is in, in his court, and so it's going to be his job to kind of coordinate the, the various opinions. Um, I think tax reform, though, is inevitably one of those things that will go, especially on, on the controversial parts like the border adjustment, will go to the president for a decision. And it's very easy to see how different advisors will come to different opinions on this, um, where um, some of the political advisors might say, uh, well, the, the border adjustment is technically it raises revenues off of the trade deficit and might meet some of our campaign objectives, um, where some of the economic officials might say, um, yes, this is clearly a better tax system, but we have to think about the transition of going from one tax system to the other and the disruption. Um, and so this is ultimately the advisors will determine what pieces of information the president have, but a lot of this is going to be a presidential call pretty soon. Okay, so let's talk about where each of those groups are in the debate. Um, Most of the attention is focused on the House Republican plan. Say a word about what that does. And Mark just used the term border adjustability. So so tell us what that is. Yeah, so I mean, you've got this House Republican blueprint, a document that was released in June of 2016, um, written mostly, um, I think, as a piece of defense at a time when uh, not very many people, if any, thought that Donald Trump was going to be elected president but Republicans wanted to have a series of, policy, series of policy proposals, and they had tax, energy, healthcare, they had them in the various issue areas, you know, to line, line up what they, sort of their vision for policy. So in the blueprint, in the blueprint for tax reform, there are sort of five major moving parts. Rate reduction from 35 to 20, um, a shift to full expensing, and uh, paired with that, the loss of the, net, uh, the deduction for net interest expense. On the international side, shift to a territorial system, would bring us in line with the rest of the developed world. Um, a transition rule to get the old earnings, the old, all the unrepatriated earnings kind of into the new system through a deemed repatriation. Um, and then an anti-base erosion rule. And the anti-base erosion rule that Republicans picked in the House was to border adjust the U.S. corporate income tax such that exports are zero taxed, at least as to U.S. corporate tax. But imports, the way the blueprint describes it, you lose the deduction for the cost of goods sold. Um, and against a 20% rate, that sort of effectively functions as a 20% tax. In truth, it could not be drafted just that way because there's a lot of cross-border activity that wouldn't be picked up by the loss of a deduction. So assuming they're right to pick up all cross-border activity, I think a good way to think about it for your listeners is a 20% tax at the border, similar, not identical, but similar into the way in which VATs um, are border adjusted. So border adjustability is there to help pay for the other provisions you mentioned, what's the cumulative deficit impact? Well, so border adjustment serves two purposes. One is it's an anti-base erosion rule because it takes tax considerations out of location decisions. But two, because as Mark indicated, we run a trade deficit of a little over $500 billion a year, a 20% tax applied against a net trade deficit of about $500 billion raises a little over $100 billion a year or in congressional speak, $1.2 trillion or so over the first decade 
which $1.2 trillion, that's a lot of money even for the federal government, um, and would finance potentially up to a 10-point reduction in the U.S. corporate rate. So it's got this anti-base erosion feature to it, but it's got this very other very important aspect, which is a, is a significant, in fact, the most significant revenue raiser in the proposal. And how do we think about the economic impacts of this? We're taxing imports. What's the impact on consumer goods, for example? Yeah, I mean, so the, the, the way to think about it is we are removing exports from tax and we're adding imports in for tax. And that switches us to basically taxing the sale of any good within our borders. Um, and that has a lot of benefits because we no longer care where corporations would be located. Um, we don't care where production is. Um, you can be have your company on the top of the Eiffel Tower and your production line across Antarctica if you want. If you're going to sell a good in the U.S., um, it gets taxed. Um, but because of what you're doing, by putting that into the tax code, um, you are going to change the initial purchases of imports and exports in a way that will work to make the dollar strengthen. And here's where one of the most um, controversial parts is, um, is that pure tax theory would say that the dollar would strengthen by as much as 25%. Um, Chair Yellen expressed some skepticism that that would, that would happen. Um, it would probably happen over a course of time that we don't know, um, and we have some historical events where it has happened completely and not completely, um, but the direction on the dollar would be up and fairly substantial under this plan. Um, but it's important to note that that is offsetting a tax gain. Um, so for the U.S., it would be at most neutral, um, but for people around the world, it could have dramatic impacts. And so if you have a lot of dollar-based debt, um, you would be a loser under this plan if you're outside of the U.S. Um, and so there are, there are distributional consequences that I would say happen anytime you do once-in-a-generation tax reform. And if it's not this, if we pick some other revenue raiser, it would be something else. Now, that means a lot to the people who are affected, um, but that may, that's the reason why tax reform is always controversial compared to tax cuts. The uncertainty over those issues, the uncertainty over the impacts on consumers and the distributional effects makes it sound incredibly politically challenging. So how do you think about the politics of border adjustability? So I mean, the politics of border adjustability to me hinge exactly on this currency argument. If members of Congress are convinced that this currency argument holds, even if they're only convinced it holds partially, um, it makes the politics of this a lot easier. If members of Congress are skeptical about the currency argument, then it just looks like a 20% tax on all imports, walk into any retail uh, establishment in the country and you're going to look at a lot of imports, right? And so th that's, the, that's really the piece. And so n never have economists and currency traders been in more demand in Washington, D.C. than they are right now. I mean, if you're an economist who knows something about currency, you are like king of the policy circle right now. Um, but this is a hard thing to prove ex ante, right? This is all tax theory. There's no example of a modern industrialized economy doing anything quite like this. So you can't say, see, you know, X country did it, they're similar to us, and their currency appreciated. Um, so it's all based on theory, and you have a lot of skeptics. And then even if the theory is 100% correct, right, so even if everyone agreed that the dollar would appreciate by 25%, it would happen immediately because currency markets are forward-looking, you have secondary consequences. Mark sort of referenced this. If you have issued a lot of dollar-denominated debt, that debt just got 25% more expensive to pay off. If you're sort of a marginal economy, that might trip you into a default situation. On the flip side, if you're a holder of a lot of U.S. debt, that, ju that just got 25% more valuable. And um, then these are one-time wealth effects, so they're not persistent. Um, but uh, to the extent that these one-time effects create destabilizing consequences, you know, that has to be wrestled with. 
And that's setting completely aside what does the WTO say about this and what do other countries do in reaction, all of which just adds to the uncertainty, making all this difficult. But it's not like any other version of tax reform is going to be easy and they just pick the hardest path. All forms of tax reform are hard. You just have to figure out, in many ways, the version of tax reform that succeeds is not the one that everyone loves. It's the version that everyone hates the least. Some of the skeptics of the House plan, we understand, sit in the Trump administration, and mm -hmm. it's still unclear where they're headed. But give us your best sense of, of where the Trump administration will come out. We, the president has promised to um, a plan that will be phenomenal uh, mm -hmm. sometime in the next couple of weeks. And what do you think that will look like? Yeah, I think, um, so when I look at the election mandate, the election mandate is to try to restart manufacturing, especially in the Midwest, which is what delivered the election to President Trump. And so I think the border adjustment is, and the tax reform overall, um, why it's so difficult for them is because there are two things that are happening. And so one is um, the expensing provisions, the lower corporate rate are unequivocally good for manufacturing. Um, but when Mr. Trump hears a strong dollar, um, he is then for a weaker dollar, and you, a weaker dollar is good for manufacturing. Um, currency arguments you can sort of have on forever about how they're, who, who they're good for, um, but if you want to help manufacturing, all else equal, you would say you want a weaker dollar. And so the House Republicans who are pushing this have to counter and explain that um, but the tax plan is start, what's driving the dollar higher is the fact that we're making the tax code more competitive and people are buying more of our exports and demanding more dollars. And so it's a pro-USA provision that is driving the dollar up. Um, but if you were the Treasury Secretary, you would be the one that would have to deal with uh, you know, a smaller country that has a lot of dollar debt that's going to have headaches around the world. And so... If, you're, if you really want to just make America the most competitive, um, this is a very reasonable plan. If you want to minimize the amount of problems you have to deal with while you're in office, um, you might go a different route. And I think that for different advisors, that will be, be something they have to wrestle with. And, and um, separately, the president has called for um, a border tax on U.S. companies that shift production to other countries. Um, yeah, so he has, I mean, he has his own version of a border tax that clearly doesn't work. Um, which is he wants to be able to just um, deliver, his campaign version is he would deliver punishment sort of ad hoc. Um, but if you put a, you know, a border tax on China, um, you're going to shift production to Vietnam. You're not going to shift it back to the U.S. And, and that's why the more, if you follow the logic, you will come back to either sort of nothing or comprehensive. Um, and, and so, but we're, you know, you're counting on that, that thought process being continued all the way to one logical <laughs> end or the other. Rohit, you um, mentioned earlier some of the politics in Congress and how um, House Republicans put together the votes on this, what the politics are in the Senate are. Can you just say another word about the kind of procedural questions? So most legislation in the Senate requires 60 votes. Um, say a word about that. Yes, yeah, so, right, as a general matter, anything, certainly anything of significance, and increasingly anything of even insignificance, takes 60 votes in the Senate. Republicans have 52 seats in the Senate, which means to do anything of, quote, significance would require at least the votes of eight additional Democrats. Um, now, when it comes to tax and budget uh, policy, there is a way uh, to enact policies using a simple majority vote, something called budget reconciliation. 
And budget reconciliation uh, does not come for free. It has its own sort of policy constraints that it imposes upon the, the, the policies that you can pursue. Um, the one that is probably best known um, is that you cannot, with budget reconciliation, enact a measure that would increase a deficit beyond the 10th year of the budget window. You can increase a deficit as much as you can get the votes for in the first 10 years, but come year 11, it has to be deficit neutral or better. Uh, so one way to deal with this, and this is how it was dealt with in 2001 with the, what we call the Bush tax cuts, was just to sunset all the tax relief at the end of the 10th year. That works, doesn't work great, but it works okay if you're just doing individual tax relief because individuals aren't redomiciling for preferential tax regimes. But if you're doing business tax reform and you really want businesses to react to the new tax code and to shift lines of production, bring intellectual property back to the United States and react in a long-term invest in America kind of way, having the whole thing sunset at the end of year 10 doesn't work. No one's going to build a factory in the United States if the tax provision that incents that is going away. Um, and so another way to deal with this sort of restriction is just to write a tax bill that doesn't increase the deficit uh, beyond the 10th year of the budget window, but that requires different policy choices. You, you can be less aggressive or less pro-taxpayer um, in the first 10 years if you're going to write it in a way that doesn't increase the deficit in the long run. And so we, end of the day, where do you think? Right now, I think they are, they're likely to head down the reconciliation path, not because they think it's not the, the best way to do it, but because it might be the only way to do it. Uh, for anyone that's uh, been watching the United States mm -hmm. Senate since the new Congress was sworn in, we are not having a moment of high kumbaya uh, between Democrats and Republicans. The cooperation is sort of at an all-time low in the Senate. So I think the way that Senate Republicans are looking at it, certainly the leadership is looking at it, is there's no hope of getting 60 votes for anything that looks like a Trump version of tax reform or even a House Republican version of tax reform. So they're going to have to do it um, using budget reconciliation, probably only getting Republican votes, although there are these five Democrats in these very red states that maybe would provide some additional Democratic support, but not enough to get to 60. I think people forget in 2001, the Bush tax cuts enacted through reconciliation, but got Democratic votes. Mm -hmm. The then ranking member of the Finance Committee, Max Baucus, voted um, for the proposal. Um, and so, you know, maybe a few Democrats, but not enough to get to 60. But I think they're headed down the reconciliation path. You know, if more cooperative spirit breaks out in the next couple of months, they might revisit that question. Um, but for right now, I think they're headed down the reconciliation road. And what are the politics in the House on the deficit? So, you know, as Mark was saying, there's there's some uncertainty about where Trump comes out, and let's just say he puts a plan on the table that's a rate cut but with big deficit impacts. How do, how do House Republicans respond to that? I don't think that there are the votes right now amongst either House or Senate Republicans for something that net of net increases the deficit. I think Republicans are very willing to use macroeconomic scoring to count the growth effects of the tax policy changes they undertake. They would measure revenue neutrality against what we call the current policy baseline. So they will assume all expiring tax provisions are made permanent and those extensions are not paid for, which is consistent with most congressional behavior over the last decade. Uh, those two moves could you know, generate uh, about a trillion dollars of headroom between you know, where we were in 2014 and where we are today. But after making those two changes, the current policy baseline, macroeconomic or dynamic scoring, after that, I think they are going to want to be able to say that it is revenue neutral, that it is not a net tax cut, because you do have a substantial contingent of House and Senate Republicans who remain very concerned about the national debt. Um, annual deficits are pretty manageable, as we sit here today, but the, the national debt continues to grow, continues to grow rapidly, and, and for many Republicans, they think that represents an existential threat to the health of the economy. 
What's your take on some of these procedural and political questions? Yeah, and well, I'll go back to um, just to the example that Rohit gave about um, President Bush. And what was important to me is that um, Senator Baucus was not originally a supporter, um, but President Bush went into his state, Montana, repeatedly and drove up support for the tax plan. Um, and then Chairman Baucus switched his vote. And so I think the, the vote count in the Senate is you, it's not independent of the capabilities of the White House. And so I tend to be on the optimistic side where if you had a president who really wanted this and was really skilled at projecting presidential power and spending a lot of time in the swing districts that you would have a chance of getting 60 votes. Um, that is, um, you know, that is, I'm, puts me on the optimistic side of the spectrum, but that assumes a, a fully engaged president in, in getting there. Um, and then, you know, the, the reconciliation route, um, is, you know, the way I think about it is if you're willing to be very aggressive, it can be done. Um, it's just harder and you have to kind of push pretty hard on some of these rules. Um, there are some you can get around and some you can't. Um, and the Bird Rule, which is sort of the 10-year, um, can't increase the deficit outside of the 10-year window, is one that you can't get around. Um, but that also makes you circle back to the border adjustment tax because that starts to raise revenue, especially in the out years, um, if it's phased in and that's something that can make corporate tax reform be revenue neutral on its own. It's much harder to get there with on individual taxes. Um, and so all these questions kind of feed back. Um, and so if you want to go reconciliation, then it also starts to drive, you know, what type of policy you want. And I think the thing that, you know, everything the White House and both houses of the Congress struggle with is um, border adjustment isn't our favorite, but it will never be, whatever raises the revenue is never going to be the favorite. And, but people are struggling with, well, is there something better to replace it with? And so far, the answer has been no, um, which is why it's, it's alive, despite the fact that it's had you know, more spears thrown in it than, uh, you know, than any other provision in the tax plan. So one issue I want to cover quickly is, let's just say they pass corporate tax reform with border adjustability. There would inevitably be a WTO challenge. Mm -hmm. And what are your thoughts about how that plays out? So. On the one hand, I think the argument, probably the best argument against the blueprint, at least as currently envisioned, is, well, you're providing a preference for domestic wages because you, know, you generate something domestically, you exclude all the export income um, from U.S. corporate tax, but you continue to generate your domestic deductions, including your deductions for domestic labor. Contra provision of pro uh, product comes in from outside the country, well, even if a substantial component of the cost of producing that product was wages, the 20% tax applies to the full value. You don't get to deduct wages out of that. So there's this wage disparity argument. So I think that's the probably the chief argument against it. The response to that, and it's obviously remains to be seen how the WTO would adjudicate this, but I think the logical response is to say, well, look, in form, you may argue that this is a violation, but it's substantively identical to a different version of the tax code that would clearly be WTO compliant, one in which, okay, if it's the domestic wage deduction that's causing all the heartburn, we could repeal the deduction for domestic wages in the United States. That would generate several trillion dollars of revenue. We could take that revenue and reduce an existing tax on wages, the payroll tax, right, and provide payroll tax relief either on the employer or employee side. And the WTO has nothing to say about our wage taxes or our payroll taxes. We can adjust those without any, um, without having to consult the WTO or with any fear of running afoul of our WTO obligations. And so the argument I would make in response to a WTO challenge is I can see why in form you might view this to be non-compliant, but it is economically equivalent to this other version of the tax code 
that would be compliant, and you should really focus on substance, not form. And maybe I'd layer on that a political argument, which is, by the way, if you rule against us here, the risk is you really destabilize the international trading system. And while the WTO is technically a formalistic legal body, uh, I think we'd be um, remiss not to acknowledge that they, that they are aware there are political consequences to the decisions that they make. I, I agree with all that. And I think that um, what's interesting, if you look at Japan's VAT, uh, most people would say Japan's VAT is probably not WTO compliant either and for the exact same type of reasons, and a case has never been brought. The, the world has decided to live with Japan's VAT. Um, and the U.S. Um, has never actually conceded that all the other countries' VATs are necessarily WTO compliant. And so the WTO would have to be a little bit careful here because with this president, who is objectively different from any other president, um, is the type that could challenge, could turn around and challenge the very um, legality of all the world's VATs, um, which are, you know, it's it's a question whether they are, you know, meet the uh, the pure intent of the of the world trading system as well, um, and so it would be it would be high stakes game, to say the least. We are taping this in mid February. Just quickly, what's going to happen next? How do we? How does this play out in terms of timing? Well, you know, um, the president has a uh, a speech before the Congress at the end of the month scheduled. Um, and he has said that he has a tax reform plan coming very soon. Um, and uh, he said today that they're in deep negotiations with the Congress. And so I would expect sometime around, you know, before, at, or immediately after that speech for him to put down his plan. Um, and a lot of this is waiting for him to reveal what his preference is. Um, and, you know, and this is something once in a generation big meets the president on board and so this will be the the big moment and you know i tend to be optimistic and i think if the president is for it um then there's a way to get to get things done if the president is not for it then it becomes very it becomes very difficult so at or before february 28th yes yeah so i agree the the speech and whatever plan he releases is a real inflection point um, in the conversation if there's one thing we've learned over the last six or eight years it's that no matter how badly a congress wants something the President of the United States is not for it, it's not going to happen, right? So Paul Ryan has wanted tax reform since the day he became Speaker and the day he became Chairman of the Ways and Means Committee. Uh, President Obama was not as enthusiastic about that. He talked a lot about it, but never engaged quite in a way that you would need a President to engage on the topic. And of course, as a result, it never happened. So for this to work, the President needs to be fully engaged, have a proposal, a proposal that he can rally support for, not just amongst Republicans, but perhaps including um, some Democrats, but you know, for that to happen, they, there has to be a plan, it has to be executed skillfully, and to some degree, some of the early missteps that we've seen in the administration have to stop, because even if those are un, not related to tax, they do detract focus from pursuing the policy objectives that they want to try to achieve uh, over the course of the next year or two. Thank you both. That was fantastic and very informative. We'll check back on this topic in a couple of months and see where we are.